My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and I'm so glad that you're here. I want to welcome you to worship, particularly if you are visiting with us. I want to let you know how we do. We typically will walk straight through an entire book of Scripture, and we call that expository teaching. We want to know what is the main point of a particular passage, and we want that to be the primary point of the preaching. So if you're new, we are right in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Genesis. We're kind of doing a speed survey through the book of Genesis because we want to use this passage to give us a glimmer and a glimpse into our God. Because all of us at some level are wrong about God. I don't know what it is, but all of us have something that we're not thinking perfectly or precisely about. And so we get to stare at our God as he's revealed in these wonderful narratives and walk out of this place, whether you're watching remotely or on the first floor, second floor, or here on the third floor, and think differently about God. And when we do that, we are changed. Now, we've been studying this book for a number of weeks now, and I'm reminded as we come to this point in our study in the book of Genesis, one of my heroes in the faith is a guy named Tommy Nelson. He's at Denton Bible Church, and he always likes to say that our brains, being that they're finite, they're just too limited to understand some of the great, grand concepts of Scripture. They're just too big, and we think that we get them, but we don't get them. It's kind of like trying to describe the Pacific Ocean. What do you say? It's wet? It's blue? It's big? You, you just can't do it. What you really need to understand the Pacific Ocean is an aquarium. Because in an aquarium, you can sort of see how life moves in the water. You can see the different levels. You can see the different kinds of sea life. Maybe it's a very small aquarium. Maybe it's a very large one like you would see in Houston or Dallas. You kind of need an aquarium to bring it down so you can sort of see the thing from end to end. That is what our passage is this morning. We're going to be in the book of Genesis in chapter 22. It is a gospel aquarium. Or as Tommy likes to say, this is a theologarium. It's not a real word but it gives us a glimpse into the enormity of this gospel that we cling to and this gospel that we confess. Now, Genesis chapter 22 is probably the high point of our Old Testament. We don't get a whole lot of times that the New Testament actually comments and refers to an Old Testament passage in this way, but we're going to cheat this morning. I've already had you turn to Genesis 22, so keep your finger there, and we're going to look just briefly at Hebrews. Matt's already asked me about Hebrews. I will tell you, no, it was not the Apostle Paul. It was Lydia. No, I'm kidding. We don't know who it was. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews gives us a summary commentary on the passage that we're going to read today in Genesis 22. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. The writer says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is God's word. What the writer of Hebrews is doing is sort of very concisely, very succinctly telling us the conundrum of Genesis 22, where Abraham has received a promise, and now he's received a command that seems to contradict the promise. What do you do? This is, in theological terms, a pickle. 
What do you do when the command of God seems to contradict God's promise? For that, we have to have the whole sweeping narrative of Genesis. And I know there's a whole lot of backstory, but you've got to stick with me for just a moment because we have to have all of this in our heads so that we can see this aquarium of the gospel, if you will. About 3,500 years ago, there's a man named Moses. And Moses has just led the children of Israel out of bondage and captivity up out of Egypt. And he sits down in the wilderness to tell them who God is, what he's like, what he's done, what he actually loves and what he hates. He's trying to use the, the delivery mechanism of their forefather Abraham to tell them what their God is like. And so Moses tells the Israelites the story that once upon a time, some 430 years earlier, there was a man named Abram who sat in Ur the Chaldeans, whose father was a pagan moon worshiper, and Abram had a barren wife named Sarah. And with that person, Moses tells them, your nation of millions was begun. And he leads them out of the land of Ur the Chaldeans, and he gives them a promise. You will have land, you will have offspring, you will have blessing. And almost immediately, Abram hears that and he goes, check. And he goes to Egypt and he's a curse to all those people. But God leads him out as a blessing. It's the same story as with Israel. And then we hear this really crazy story of Abram goes all like warlord and he musters his servants and they go and do war against four kings and had whipped five kings. What's going on there? God's getting it done. Every time we see a story with Abraham, what we're seeing is that God is faithful. God gets this done until finally in chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and says, listen, I am swearing by myself. I'm going to cut covenant. I will get this done. No matter how it looks, no matter what you understand or perceive, I will get this done. And God taking some sort of visceral form as like a lightning bolt takes shape and intentionally walks through the pieces of these animals to say, if I don't make good on this, may this happen to me. Almost immediately, Abram says, got it. And then he decides to short circuit the process. He goes into Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and they conceive a son named Ishmael. And Abram says, well, this is it. I have finally produced the seed that you told me I would have. And God says, no, it's not him. It's not him at all. God reiterates in chapter 17 and makes an oath. I'm going to do this through you, Abram, through your body and that of your wife. When I come back in a year, she will be pregnant. We learn the right of circumcision, the laying aside of human strength. A year or so later, three angelic figures, one of which is the angel of the Lord, comes to Abram. We see hospitality in the ancient Near East, and Abram understands that he's dealing with God himself. He negotiates for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, can the principle be inverted? Normally, the wickedness of an individual splatters on the many. Can it work the other way around? Can the righteousness of an individual actually bless those around? And God says, yes. Unfortunately, there are no righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. It gets really bad. Short story, God rains down fire and judgment and death and destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, he escapes and he ends up in a cave with his daughters and they conceive the nations of Moab and Ammon. It's crazy. And then you think, well, finally, surely Abram is gonna understand the faithfulness of God and he's gonna trust him no matter what he sees. No, he encounters a foreigner, a man from the Philistine country whose title is Abimelech, my father is king. And again, at the age of 90, he gives his wife into his harem. That's crazy. And God curses those people and brings them out and Abram emerges more prosperous than before. It's a strange thing. But then we have chapter 21 when at long last, Abraham and Sarah have a son and his name is Isaac. Isaac, he's laughter. Despite all what we see, God still provides and sometimes it's hard for us to believe, but God gets done what God says he will get done. 
Immediately there is conflict in the household. Ishmael begins to mock the child. Sarah doesn't like it. She kicks out Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham doesn't like that. God says, listen to your wife. That's good Bible right there. Listen to her, Abraham. Let them go. I'll take care of it. Ishmael and, and Hagar go out into the wilderness. Almost immediately they run out of food and water and they're about to die. Hagar takes this lad who's probably late teens, maybe even early 20s, and deposits him under a bush because she can't bear the sight and the sound of him starving to death. And the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, no, 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 Hagar, I've heard your cries. Remember, I'm the God that sees. I will bless this boy. He will be a father of a great nation and he will prosper. And he does. We'll find out later Abram goes down into the southern part of what is today Israel to the Negev, the wilderness, and he encounters another guy named Abimelech. And he cuts covenant the same way that God does with him and says, I will be a blessing to you. And there Abraham calls God El Olam, the everlasting God. And he plants a very subtle little detail that Moses gives. There he plants a tamarisk tree. Why should we care? Abraham is growing in his faith. A tamarisk tree grows very, very slowly, and it has absolutely no value whatsoever for the one that planted it. He's called God the everlasting God, and he's planted a tree that the Israelites would have seen and says, this is the everlasting God. This tree, the tamarisk, is the air conditioner of the ancient Near East. At midday, it gives off a nice light mist. I've been there. You can experience this today. He's saying for future generations, I want you to know who God is. Genesis chapter 22, after all these things, please read with me. Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Our text says, after these things. Now, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but we know that a lot of time has passed. For centuries and centuries, all the scholars of antiquity assumed that about 25 years have passed since Isaac was born. About 25 years between chapters 21 and 22. Josephus, ancient historian, a lot of other scholars forever and ever assumed and understood that about 25 years have passed. So 25 years, Abram waits for his son to be born. 25 years go by where he's getting to enjoy and experience this relationship and to see his son grow, that he's going to be the one through whom the provision and the promise and the prosperity will come. So Isaac is about 25 years old, we think. After all of these things, God tested Abraham. Now, we have the advantage of reading Moses' narration. Abraham does not know this is a test. Just like Job, who is a contemporary of Abraham, Job does not know that this is a test and a conversation between God and Satan. Abraham does not know that this is a test, but I have to be clear here. Most of us have a tendency to misunderstand the term test. We think of math class because I hate math class and therefore I hate tests. This is not that kind of test. This is a test like a goldsmith testing the metal to see if there are any impurities to refine that metal, to make it more precious. This is the term that is used here. And God tested Abraham. But Abraham doesn't have the advantage of knowing what's going on. But we do then as now. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. I love that. By the way, that's my definition of sanctification. Not that you try harder, not that you get better, not that you sin less. Simply wide open, fully exposed and available to your God. When he calls, you say, here I am. No nooks, no crannies, no creepy dark corners. Here I am, all of me. Abraham has grown. 
He's completely accessible. He's not relying on any of his old crutches or plans or roadmaps. God said, take your son. Listen to these four descriptions. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. It's just like the call 50 years earlier when he's sitting in Ur. Just go, start walking. I'll tell you when you get there. Moriah, just, just the region of Moriah, that's not very specific. Just go, I'll tell you when you get there. Take your son, your only son, laughter, joy, the one that you love, and go to the region or to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. No, 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 this cannot be. After all these things, this is what's going to happen. Abraham has been given a promise and it's going to come through Isaac, but now there's a command to offer him as a sacrifice. Go to the land of Moriah. Now, Moriah means a whole lot biblically. This is the place where Abraham has encountered and met Melchizedek back in chapter 14, where he offers tithe to the prince of righteousness, the king of Salem and peace. This is Moriah, where we're told in 2 Chronicles 3.1 that Solomon builds his temple because his father David purchased that land from a man named Arauna. It was a threshing floor. It is Jerusalem. God says, I want you to go there to that exact spot, Mount Moriah, where Solomon built the temple, where Temple Mount still stands today. I want you to go there and I want you to offer your firstborn son. Now we're in the 21st century in a Western civilization context. This passage is vexing and it's tripped people up for millennia. What's going on? Moses's listeners and his readers and Abraham's age would have known exactly what was going on. God is holy and sin must be addressed. Sin must be judged. If it isn't, then God ceases being God and he cannot cease being God. Sin must be judged. And all through the pattern of the Old Testament, what we find is the firstborn belongs to God as an atonement for sin. We see this as the Egyptians are slave masters over the Israelites and the Israelites are finally granted freedom by God and they come out and God says, I will pronounce a curse on the firstborn who does not have the blood over them. I demand the firstborn, the most costly of all your possessions because sin must be atoned for. Abraham would have understood this. God says, take your son, the one you love, to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, let me be very clear. God does not say, take your son and murder him. If he wanted that, Abram would have just stabbed him right there in the tent in Beersheba. That's 50 miles away. God doesn't say that. Take him and offer him as a burnt offering. I demand the firstborn. Abraham has a conundrum, a conflict. There's a collision. He's promised this, but he's commanded this. What am I going to do? This doesn't make sense. How can this be? And by the way, that is the question of our entire Bible. How can this be? How can God demand righteousness, and yet I'm a sinner, and God loves me? How can this be? That's what this passage is addressing. Continuing on. Offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early. He doesn't wait around. He practices instant obedience. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, his servants, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I want you to see as you're hearing this story how quickly this narrative is going. We're just kind of told, he got his servants, he got his donkey, he cut a bunch of wood. By the way, enough wood to burn an entire human being? That's a lot of wood and it's heavy. 
And they begin this journey, but the story's kind of picking up speed and it's going pretty quickly. It's 50 miles from Beersheba to Jerusalem. It's a three-day journey. In verse four, on the third day, no accident, no coincidence, on the third day, Abram's had at least three days now to ponder this. How can this be? How can the promise God made me 50 years ago now be in jeopardy by the command of this same God? But what Abraham knows and has been refined and polished and refined and polished is that God is faithful. Even if I don't understand or see the whole picture, God is faithful. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Verse five, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Notice who's coming back. This is what the writer of Hebrews comments on. Abraham doesn't understand it, but he trusts God to make good on his promise. He remembers the covenant. I and the boy, Isaac at 25, we will return and worship. And I come again to you, verse six. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Now we have the advantage of 3,500 years after Moses looking at that and knowing exactly what this is a foreshadowing and a picture of as Jesus walking the way of pain and shame and death carries his own cross. Isaac, the son through whom blessing will come, carries the wood on which he will be laying in a moment. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, the fire of judgment. We already know about that because we've heard about the fire of judgment that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, the father himself, carries the fire for judgment and the knife, the dagger of death and destruction. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. Moses wants us to understand there is an intimacy, there is a relationship as they travel together, as they walk and as they talk and as they experience relationship, this father and this son, and then things slow way down. Verse seven, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? As they're having this dialogue and discussion, Abraham's son Isaac notices that something is missing and he asks the question, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And by the way, that is the question of the Old Testament. Where's the lamb? How will God provide? How will this be made right? Which is why it's so important when in the New Testament, the first voice we hear is that of John the Baptist who says, behold the lamb. All the prophets were waiting for the lamb. Isaac asking, where is the lamb? John says, behold, he has come. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went on, both of them, together. It's excruciating how this slows down and now we're having this conversation. It's as though Abraham says, my son, I don't know. God promised and it was gonna come through you, but he's commanded. And I don't know how this is going to work out. I can't see it, I don't understand it, son, but we're gonna keep walking together. He says, God will provide for himself. Literally, God will see to it himself to provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Verse nine, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. He lives in tents, he's mobile, but his altars are all permanent structures. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. We always think about this great act of faith from Abraham, but I want you to think about Isaac at 25, voluntarily submitting 
volitionally surrendering, allowing this 125-year-old man to tie him on an altar. There's not a whole lot of mystery of what's about to happen. And the son voluntarily yields to the will of the father. It is an amazing picture. He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter or to slay his son. We have these pictures from bad movies of Abraham raising up the knife to plunge it into his chest. No, that's not how you did sacrifice. It would have been right here, and it would have been horrifying. And yet Abraham moves forward. He stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Now we know the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh. This is a pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Godhead Trinity, intervenes and stays Abraham's hand. He said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, just in time. The angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 12, Abram, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. That's a male lamb at least 12 months old. Behold, there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. One of my favorite words in all the Old Testament, instead instead of his son. That's the core and that's the crux of our confession as Christians. Substitution. In a word, what do we believe? That something else, someone else died in my place. The innocent died for the guilty. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it. He names it Jehovah Jireh. This mountain on Moriah that becomes Jerusalem, that becomes Temple Mount. He names it then. The Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide. And Moses wants the Israelites to understand this is what our God is like. Oh, he's promised prosperity and blessing through this person, but he's commanded a thing. How will he reconcile this? The Lord himself will provide the solution. The Lord himself will provide the reconciliation and the clarity in the situation. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided or seen to. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord is going to reiterate the promise, Abraham, I'm going to get this done through and for you. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. This is a pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Godhead going, I swear... Um, I swear by, uh, well, me, because there's nothing else like me, nothing else eternal, nothing else bedrock and steadfast, not even the cosmos. I swear by myself, and I cannot be undone. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now, this was not a contingency clause. I have tested you. I have, like a goldsmith, refined you and seen that you trust. What is faith? Faith is understanding the thing being believed. It is understanding it, the content of our faith. It is agreeing that it is so. I agree that that is true, Abram tells of God. He is faithful and trust. So understanding, agreement, and trust. Living your life fully as though it's true because it is. 
The angel of the Lord says to Abraham, now I see. You've not withheld your son. You trusted me even when it looked impossible. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's the land promise. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. See, God's a missionary. God loves the nations and the peoples of the world, and he has a plan to bless them through an individual. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. And we would think the story is essentially over, but strangely, Moses decides to include this odd little birth announcement, beginning in verse 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has also born children to your brother Nahor. What? Who cares? Why does this matter? Ah, it matters massively. 21, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. It's been a long time since I've heard any twins named Uz and Buzz. Those of you who are expecting, I'm expecting an Uz and a Buzz in this congregation. We're due for an Uz and a Buzz. Why are we being told about Uz and Buzz? Oh, well, hold on. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Why do we care? Oh, here's why. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Tebah, Geham, Tehash, and Maakach. Oh, we're being told God's going to get this done. It looked for all the world that there was no solution to the conundrum. God demands justice and judgment, and he himself provides. How will the promise maintain its credibility? Through God himself providing. So what are we all these 3,500 years after Moses writes this down, 4,000 years after Abraham experiences this, what are we in the 21st century to take away from all this? Let me give you some summary implications here. Things that will hopefully land this squarely in our laps. As has already been said by Matt, our big idea for this series thus far is that God is faithful. Piggybacking off of that, implication number one, or first principle goes like this. Not even death can frustrate the faithfulness of God. Not even death. Death is not the end. We fear death. God does not. Not even death can frustrate the faithfulness of God. This story of Abraham doing what he does on Mount Moriah is not about you and me trying harder to be better or even to try to be like Abraham. It's really fascinating. This story of Abraham and Isaac appears, of course, in Jewish Torah. It also appears in the Muslim Quran. Both books, both texts mention this story. And the thrust of both of those traditions is that you are supposed to be like Abraham. You're just supposed to try harder. But that leaves us frustrating because we, we know we can't do that. That's not the point of this passage. Moses' point of this passage is that we would look at our God as the God of the impossible who promises and also commands. And we can't always understand, but we are to have faith. The story is to make not us more obedient, but to be more gobsmacked at the glory and the grace of our God. To look at this God of ours and to trust him no matter what we see, no matter what we perceive or what we don't understand. And I know that that might sound super churchy and not particularly helpful or not very practical at all. I'll trust God. Okay, great. Trust God. No, Nothing could be more intensely practical and pertinent to your everyday, moment-by-moment -moment life. If we truly know how this story is going to go, not end, 
But if we truly know and trust how this story is going to go and that it's just going to keep getting better and better and better. And now we have the New Testament to tell us sometimes God tests us, not like a math teacher, but like a goldsmith, preparing us ever increasingly for glory upon glory. We have the benefit and the advantage of knowing what these things are. That changes our outlook and our perspective entirely. When things come up in our lives, we don't shriek back in horror and say, why? Why is God doing this? Ah, there's a chunk of my old self that God is hammer and chiseling away, or that he's turned up the fire to refine away. He must really love me. Now, a whole bunch of people calling themselves in Christ ones, Christians who think that way, who are not characterized by fear, uncertainty, and doubt, is precisely what this world needs. Not shaking their fist going, why God? Why God? Why not? Why this? No, 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 no. Oh, this thing is happening. He loves me. Now, can you imagine if you became the kind of person with that kind of outlook, what that would do for your spouse, what that would do for your children, what that would do for your coworkers, the people in your small group? That's what this passage is calling us to, to trust God because God is faithful. God will do whatever it takes to make us into those kinds of people, and he's doing it now, which leads me to implication number two. What we see Abraham passes, we might say, Idea number two, idolatry is an eternal investment in something temporary. And we all do it. Our hearts and minds are idol factories. And we're always grasping for something that we think or we believe is going to make us happy or secure or both. Anything, anything that we think would wreck us if we lost it is an idol. I don't know what that is your friends, your family, your finances, your incredible good looks. I know, I know. Praise God, I've not been mauled or scarred because I don't know what I would do. Uh, anything that you think would wreck you if you lost it is an idol. And God will always be in the business of wrecking those false strongholds. We tend to make the good things that God gives us the best things. And so we begin to love the gifts more than the giver. But God's too good. He will not permit us to sit in that slop. He always removes our idols. Isaac represented all of Abraham's hopes, all of the best of him. You can just see as they're walking along and having this conversation, Isaac, you're my very best. You're the greatest. You're the goodest I've ever gotten. And he takes his hands off. Your job, parent, is not to keep your children alive. Your job, parent, is to introduce them to God most high, to take your hands off and to steward that little resource. And then you will find joy and security and fulfillment, especially if you name them Buzz and Us. Sometimes it feels like the shepherd, the great shepherd, is trying to kill you when really he's trying to save you. And we as sheep have a tendency to go astray. But this passage is reminding us the good shepherd is good. And sometimes it feels like he's holding us under, but he's actually trying to polish us and save us. And so we have the opportunity to think rightly about this good God of ours. Our families, our finances, and friends are all good things, but God is everlasting. Trust him. Which brings me to my third point. Make sure your God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
This is how God astonishingly announces himself and introduces himself to Moses and Moses trembled. God's telling him, I am the God of particularly people and particularly people who are not particularly awesome. That's the kind of God that I am. The creator of the cosmos loves little bitty people like you and me. But make sure your God is actually the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, sometimes we think about God in ways that are not really what he's like. Sometimes we ascribe characteristics or attributes to him that he does not have. Sometimes it might feel like God's promise contradicts his command, but he's made a way. Sometimes we think of God as distant and disinterested, so we've got to take matters into our own hands to get what we want. But that's not who God is. Every time Abraham tries to take matters into his own hands, he's a flaming wreckage of calamity and catastrophe. And I know that feeling. And I bet all of you do as well. No, no. Our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God that brings life from death. And perhaps some of you need to hear that with respect to your marriage. You sincerely believe that it's dead and over. Not if there's a God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He brings dead things to life. And it might hurt when he does it. And you might not understand, but trust him. He's faithful. Some of you need to hear that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brings dead things to life. You need to hear that in your relationship with a particular child or maybe even a parent. And you think it's broken, it's severed, it's separate, it's dead. Not if there's a God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe you need to hear that with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. I don't know. But is your God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And is he the God of you? If that's true, the gospel says he can take dead things and make them alive. That's what he delights in doing. Just to be super clear on this, God has not made you or me a promise for blessing or prosperity. That's on TV. Don't watch those shows. That's not biblical. God's never promised that you will be prosperous and a blessing. No, no, no. All of the promise, all of the swearing that God does by himself, all of the oath, all of the covenant has all been bound up already and given to us in the person of Jesus. We get to live in light of all of the fulfillment of God's faithfulness. It was a person, it was Jesus. We look back at this God and we live in the light of that promise now fulfilled. How do we end this passage? How do we walk out of here different because of what this scripture is telling us? It's about Jesus. It's pointing us perfectly to the person of Jesus. Where's the lamb, my father? Isaac asks. The prophets, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? We celebrate Passover, but where's the lamb that will finally stick? That we don't have to keep doing this every single year. Where's the lamb? And John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the long-awaited one, the Messiah, who could and would impute his righteousness to the many wicked and undeserving, that he would die in our place instead. The undeserving, that's us, so that we could be sons of God. This story of Abraham, it prepares us for the story of Jesus. Now we can look back and say to God what God said to Abraham. Remember what God said to Abraham on the mountain? Now I know, now I see how much you love me, that you did not withhold your only son. We have this vantage point 2,000 years after Jesus. Now we can say to God, now I know. 
Now I know how much you love me, how much you're for me, because you didn't withhold your son, your only son, your joy and your laughter. You didn't withhold him while I was a scumbag rebel of a sinner. Now I know. Your words get to be that that Abraham heard. Now I know. Do you know? Oh, Christian, you must know. God is faithful. We hear Isaac heart-wrenchingly ask, Father, where is the lamb? Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh, he will provide for himself. And we see this scene in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus on his knees praying as though drops of blood because he's so in anguish and angst, Father, where is the lamb? And the answer is a deafening silence. It's you. Please, is there any other way? No. No response. Behold, the lamb of God. God would provide. God would see to it. Jesus was that lamb. Some 2,000 years ago, as Abram is about to slay his son, Jesus himself stays Abraham's hand. Do not lay a hand on the boy, knowing that soon in 2,000 years, he would be on the cross and he would sing, not father. He would scream, father, no, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And no voice from heaven would stay the hand of the father. Isaiah tells us that the father was pleased to crush his son. There seems to be a conundrum. God's made a promise, but there's also a command. How will it get fulfilled? How will it get solved? God himself would provide. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, if you're here and you're not a believer, I want to invite you to believe. Not to fully understand because none of us ever will, but to believe. That means to understand what I'm saying, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. He made atonement for your sin, that you would understand that, that you would agree with that, and that you would live your whole life with all of your weight saying, here I am. I invite you to believe that. If you are a believer and you have been for a very long time, I want to remind you, none of your schemes, none of your devices will ever bring security or joy or fulfillment, but God is faithful. He has sent the lamb. God provided. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for the Lamb of God that is your Son, Jesus. We do pray, God, that if there's any here this morning that don't know you, that you would move by your Spirit. You would lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus, that they would step out of their own strengths, which is death, out of their own skills, which is death, out of their own talents, which is death, and into the finished work of your Son, Jesus, that you would send your Spirit to eternally indwell them, that they would have life and light for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us by this gorgeous picture of the gospel, this little aquarium of the ocean of your grace, would you remind us of how much you are for us, that you did not withhold your son, your only son, the son whom you love. I pray, Father, that we would wrap our hearts and minds and souls and lives and community around this truth. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.